How are you feeling about the Bible reading, guys? In what way do you mean that? Um, not about the text that we read, right. but in terms of how are you doing so far in the year of reading? I know, Matthew, for you, this is your first time reading through the Bible in a year. AJ, I know that you've done this before, but we're hitting June. We're pretty much at the halfway mark. How how are you feeling? It's, eh, I have mixed feelings about it. It's, for me, it's a lot of reading. It's more reading than I would normally do. Uh, so I haven't really done much reading on top of this, mm-hmm. which I kind of don't like, but I'm just like, this already feels like a lot of reading. Can you remind the listeners, are you also listening to audio Bibles or are you purely reading? You know, I tried to do that today and I don't know what it is. Maybe I need to find a different Bible app because I'll hit play and it'll play for like a minute or two and then just stop. And then I got to, you know, bring it back up on my phone and hit play again. And, and and then if, and then if I do something else, I forget, but then like, there's no way to like choose where it starts. It just always starts at the beginning of the chapter. So then sometimes if it messes up, it just restarts at the beginning of the chapter. <laughs> and I'm like, forget this. I'm like, I hate this. Yeah. Which app are you using? I don't, like the main Bible app. I don't know. What is it? It's just called Bible. Uh, oh. Open phone. Sounds like a generic Bible app. It's just, I mean, it just says Bible. Oh, I wouldn't be using that thing. Well, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'll find a, I'll try to find a less glitchy yeah, one. You know, I, I actually, when I do listen, listen to the ESV Bible app because Kristen Getty reads and I listen at like 1.7 speed and it's, I, I think it's really enjoyable. Do they have one narrated by Christopher Walken? Oh, that would be crazy. I can guarantee you that they don't. Dang it. I would listen to that. They do have one from the voice of Darth Vader, but I'm blanking on the name right now. Oh. Does Dwell Bible app have that? No. Yeah, what's that guy's name? But I was bringing up Dwell. Oh. Because Dwell is the app that I use, but you have to pay for it. What? I'm not paying for that. It's legit. You can pick the voice, oh. you can pick the version, and it doesn't stop. Mid chapter. What about Sean Connery? Is there? Does he? Did he do one? That would be good. Morgan Freeman. I just might put you to sleep though. Yeah, for real. That or, would be a good like if you're not quite tired, but you know you need to go to bed. Yeah. I have another one from David Cochran Heath. I think is his name. He's the one who acted in all the Perot shows. Dude, what if Schwarzenegger did one? <laughs> that would not be listenable. <laughs> That would be great. It'd be hard to take it seriously. <laughs> I won't try to do it, but that would just be so funny. But it would work well for some of like the war scenes we've been reading about. True. And he had to pass through Samaria. <laughs> okay. Let me play let me play the ESV for you with Chris and Getty. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Oh, you're listening to it on a I don't know. faster speed. That's why she sounds a little bit more like a computer. Yeah, I actually have it only at like 1.3 because I was listening to it while I was trying to sleep. This is one. But it's such a big pause, especially in poetry. So I like doing it more like up here. Understand. You seek after God. 
Anyway. I, that, that's a good I don't think I can listen to that voice. I think I listen to podcasts at that speed all the time. So I'm, I don't know. So AJ, how are you feeling? I also have mixed feelings about it. You know, it kind of depends on the week. It depends on the reading, uh, what's going on in life. A lot of factors, I think. Like last week, we had some very confusing, you know, there's so many names and we weren't sure what was going on in some of the Old Testament stuff. And, and that's kind of hard to get through, like we've we've talked about before. But then sometimes I find that reading longer chapter chapters and portions of Scripture, it has been really helpful to do mm-hmm. that. So, Yeah, I've liked... Obviously, just reading through everything because there's stuff like, oh, I've never read that. I didn't know that. That's cool. That's interesting. So, like, that aspect of it is really good. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I'm about in the same place because it is a lot of reading. And it's hard to know what's going on all the time or who the characters are or what to even think about it. So, sometimes I get a little frustrated because I'm like, I don't have time to look into this. So, is this actually beneficial or not? You know, because I'm not understanding what I'm reading. But I think it's still beneficial. It's a little frustrating at times, but I'm glad I'm doing it. Yeah, I agree. I'm mostly glad that I'm doing it with you guys. Because it's been a little bit frustrating to me. Because we're reading just enough each time that we're, we have large chunks, but not quite enough to get through a whole book. It is frustrating to have to pick up and like, re-get back into it, especially with the way I'm reading, where I'll do most of the reading over like Old Testament one day, New Testament another. So I've been having trouble keeping it all together. So I've started listening to a book on an app called Hoopla, where you can listen to audiobooks with your library card. I'm listening to a book called The Invitation by Eugene Peterson, where he kind of just talks through the main message of every book of the Bible. So that's been helpful for me. So I'd recommend it. It's for free. I haven't had a library card, I think, since high school. I mean, I just, I had a Hennepin County library card and I needed a Dakota County one. I went on the website. I got it in like online. You get registered for it for free in no time. And then they send it in the mail, but you can start using that number right away. So I started using Hoopla that night. And then I got an email from the library saying that they they don't do late fees. What? So it seems like it's a great library system to be part of. And the physical library is right down the street. Yeah. I remember I was a senior in high school and I checked out a book to do a paper or report or whatever. And I lost the book (laughs) for like six months. Like it was a long time. It's so unlike you. Well, yeah, right. (laughs) And then they actually like mailed me a letter like we want our book or you have to pay for it or something like that. And I I happened to find it. Oh, man. So like I just, you know. Returned it. I just returned it. And I'm like, I can't ever go back to the library now because I have this giant fine I don't want to pay because it was like a year late. Yeah. Man, that would be a little intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, I just never went back. So David died. Well, prior um, to his death, he did something weird. What? Not David. No, yeah, he did. Let's talk about it. What did he do? What are you talking about, Aaron? Well, he's an old man. Apparently, he's having trouble staying warm. Oh, we touched on this just slightly last week. Okay, yep. remind us what where we are. So David's pretty much on his deathbed, 
pretty much an, a, a really old man confined to his bed, it seems like. He needs to stay warm. And so the people do this search across all of the kingdom, essentially, and they find this young, beautiful Shunammite woman. I'm guessing that's a non-Israelite. You know, it's hard for me to know what a Shunammite is, other than our footnote that says Shunem was a town in the hill country of Issachar at the foot of Mount Mora. But I'm not quite certain what all of that means. But anyway, apparently she's like the most attractive unmarried woman in the whole kingdom, and she now is his bed warmer, so she keeps him warm by laying in his bed. And then she becomes his caretaker, it seems like. So I think that's just a pretty bizarre thing. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I did find that a little bit odd. So then she's pretty much like owned by the Davidic family because then later on this, you know, after David, well, when David's about to die, one of his sons, right? Or stepsons. I don't know how he'd say it. Sons, sons right? Yeah. But not through... I mean, he's had so many wives. I I don't know the lineage, but his son like tries to take the throne instead of letting Solomon take it. Well, Solomon eventually gets it, and then this guy, his half brother or whatever, who tried to take the throne, goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom. It's like, hey, you need to make, you know, I have one request for you. Don't deny me. I I want to marry the Shunammite girl that was the bed warmer for Dad essentially bad decision it's just a a really weird scene and she you know like she has no control over this you know so Bathsheba is pretty much like yeah i'll make it happen and then when she does solomon's like ah you're a traitor and kills him yeah, yeah. i was confused by that yeah well i want to talk about why bathsheba was going along with it why didn't she be you know know that what solomon how he would react. We just, maybe she just didn't know that. Or like, maybe she wanted this guy to get killed or she, I don't know. So yeah, it's hard weird. to know. Was she like being deceptive of like, yeah, I'll pass your request on, right. pretending to be genuine to him, but knowing that would earn disfavor. I don't know. Why was that? I, I didn't catch why that was a killable offense. Me either. Other than it seems like it's trying to lay claim on something, a person slash property that was David's, mm-hmm. you know? So I I am like majorly speculating here, but okay. you know how when David decides Solomon should be coronated, the text multiple times says that Solomon rode on David's own mule. So it's almost like Solomon taking ownership of something of David's, showed his genuine authority, his legitimacy. And I'm wondering if this request was maybe seen as something like that. Mm. And maybe it even relates to an earlier incident where Absalom, I believe it was Absalom, slept with David's concubines, 10 concubines. Didn't that happen? After David had fled the city, yeah, he was, left his concubines behind, yeah, 10 of up, them. Yeah, and up then on it, the top of the palace. Yeah. So maybe this maybe it's somewhat related to that where it's like a show of superiority or force or ownership or something. I don't know. What what does the ESV study bible say? Yeah, so there's that inference from 2 Samuel 16 that you know with Absalom that 
and you know this liaison with the king's concubines amounted to a claim to the throne. So he was kind of trying to take yeah. that angle with maybe getting more support again. That could be. Yeah, the CSB has this section labeled as Adonijah's foolish request. So, I mean, I guess we know it's foolish, but it's hard to know the social and political dynamic of all of that. Now, as we're going through this text, I think there are several indications early on that Solomon is not going to be a righteous king for the long haul, despite the fact that he is gifted by God, a wise and understanding heart. You know, chapter 11, which we didn't get to, has the heading in the CSB, Solomon's Rebellion or something like that. Um, But prior to that, it seems to me that there are indications that Solomon will be unfaithful to God. What did you guys see about Solomon in chapters 1 through 10? I think he starts off with, you know, probably the best foot possible. You know, God comes to him after his kingdom has been established and kind of cleaned house. And, you know, God asks him, you know, I'll I'll give you whatever. Tell me what you want. And he asked for wisdom and it pleased God. And so God gave him other success as well. And we see that wisdom being enacted and the kingdom being famous and prosperous and successful. So I think think initially we see all positives, something negative coming. I guess the only thing uh, <clears throat> that was probably a misstep was marrying Pharaoh's daughter. I mm-hmm. think I, I think I've heard he he shouldn't have done that. So, but as far as in this passage, it doesn't really cause any issues yet. But I think kind of like you said, eleven and onward, he kind of starts you know turn into the other gods of his wives or whatever. Yeah. So I want to read a little bit from 1 Samuel 8, when Israel is demanding that Saul becomes their king, and God warns them what will happen if they appoint that kind of king. He said, These are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. So this is like an oracle of judgment. And if we remember from Deuteronomy 17, this king is not supposed to take foreign wives. He's supposed to abide by the law. But as you've pointed out, Matthew, he takes Pharaoh's daughter as his wife, which is like, the opposite of what you'd expect an Israelite king to do when they were enslaved by Pharaoh. But then as we read on in chapter 5, verse 13, King Solomon drafted forced laborers from all Israel. So he is making slaves of everybody, you know, to do his work, to build the temple. And then um, as we go on, There was a listing of all the chariots and the horses and the number of people running before the chariots, 
all of that to say, I think if First Samuel 8 is in our mind, then we're going to start to feel like Israel's going to be in trouble soon. They're not crying out yet, but they're going to get there. What do you think about that? I thought the drafted labor was not Israelites. I thought it was someone else. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at least in chapter 5, 13 and following, it seems like he drafted forced laborers from all Israel. That's what it seems like, but in chapter 9, I thought it cl- kind of clarified what that was. Yeah, I do seem to remember there was a chapter saying none of the Israelites are slaves, but people yeah. who they never fully forced out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, and then I found in chapter oh. 4. Yeah, 920 and 21. Yeah, so of the people remained... Solomon imposed forced labor on them, but he did not consign the Israelites to slavery. They were his soldiers, servants, commanders, captains, commanders of his chariots and cavalry. So, I mean, I think it's borderline forced labor for them, maybe. How much of a choice do they have to be in his army? I yeah, don't know. I mean, it, it, the text seems to present it positively when they're like, you know, you only have to do one shift away yeah. or something like that and then you're here home for two yep. months so it seems like it made it went out of its way to clarify that it's actually it seems like it's a pretty good deal in a kingdom that's super prosperous right now yeah, yeah it, it, it is right now yeah it didn't seem overly oppressive oh yeah. yeah sure right now okay yeah so what i'm trying to say is not that people are unhappy right now but that this the early signs sure, of Solomon sure. taking on the persona of the Oracle of Judgment of 1 Samuel 8 and failing to live up to the standards of Deuteronomy 17 are already present, even though it's not till our reading next week in chapter 11 where he explicitly is identified as being unfaithful to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, the... A lot of stuff in this passage I thought was pretty cool. I mean, the temple and his palace and all that sounds yep. extremely impressive. A lot of gold. Uh, so, I mean, that that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, and that's a little bit of the conundrum of the whole thing is while he's going about to build the temple, there are signs that maybe he's not an upright guy even in the way that, you know, maybe his friend was being deceptive, but in the towns that he gives his friend, it seems like he picks the worst of the towns to pay him back because there's just that comment afterwards, like now Solomon, or now Hiram had given him 9,000 pounds of gold. So it's like this guy did a substantial thing and didn't get a great return on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's, again, just like with David, we have a mixed bag of righteousness and unrighteousness and over and over, the Lord is speaking in this text saying, if you walk in my ways, there will be one of your family on the throne forever. So that it seems like even there, there might be a bit of a warning or at least an indication that all won't be right. Now, if you were to identify the climax of the story so far, what would you say is like the big moment in these chapters? Uh, For me, that would be chapter 10, I would say, uh, with the queen of Sheba comes to him because she's heard of his great wisdom and she's just blown away by it. Mm -hmm. They exchange 
like an absurd amount of valuable gifts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's pretty impressive. And then it talks about just how much gold he would get like per year, which was yeah, an insane amount. Um, and then verses 21 through 22, all of King Solomon's drinking cups were gold and all the utensils were pure gold. There was no silver since it was considered nothing in Solomon's time. That's so baller. It's like they had so much gold and wealth. It was just like everything's just gold. Like we don't have time for silver. Yeah. And a few verses later it says, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. All of the excess and the decadence reminds me of the descriptions of King Ahasuerus' kingdom in the book of Esther, Hmm. where they start out with this... 180 day wine feast and all of the goblets are gold. Like, I wonder if they're drawing on some of the imagery in, in picturing him kind of like Solomon. I don't know, but that, that incident with Sheba is remarkable. Yeah. And then there's what there was fleets of ships bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. I mean, he just, he's just getting everything. Yeah. This sounds pretty sweet. Yeah, and it's, at times it seems like he has so much gold he doesn't know what to do with it all. So he starts making golden shields and, right. you know, a bunch of golden lions. I mean, I probably would too. I don't know. If you got that much gold, gold it up. Now, AJ, what were what did you identify as the climactic moment in these chapters? Well, a significant moment is when the Ark of the Covenant is brought to the temple and then... You know, Solomon's prayer of dedication, I thought was really, really important. I thought that was really, it was kind of, uh, not climactic, it's not the right word, but just kind of like, it completed this journey that we've been on for so long where, you know, there's a multitude of Israelites now and they're in the land and Solomon's rule is from Egypt to, I forget where the other... Euphrates, yeah, I don't know. Where it the is. boundary yeah. is it's it's as massive as it's probably ever going to get, I think. Yeah, and it, it's just this pinnacle of, and now the ark is in the temple and God's residing there. I feel like that's just kind of this. They finally, finally did it. They finally they got there. That's true. I didn't think about it that way because you've got, you know, way, you know, going way back earlier in the Bible. It's like all right being oppressed by the Egyptians and then they're wandering in the desert and then they screw that up and then they finally get into the promised land, but then they're, you know, kind of at war a lot for quite a while in order to get the land. And then with David's reign, it's like they're there and it's it's pretty good. It's not bad, but yeah, this is kind of like the top of the mountain because it's like, okay, everything's pretty much peaceful for a while. Just uh, flourishing economy or whatever. They just got gold mm-hmm. coming out of their ears. So it kind of is like the top of the mountain moment as far as everything they've gone through. Yeah, yeah, there's peace everywhere. You know, multiple times it says they have peace in all of their land, in all of their borders. In like chapter eight, the people said, blessed be the Lord. He has given rest to his people Israel according to all he has said. Not one of all of the good promises he made through Moses, his servant, have failed. So it's like everything that we've been reading up to this point has now come to the, a conclusion. And it's almost like this could be the end of the story. Even more so, 
inclusion is the word I was looking for. Oh, yeah. I think it's a great word. Yeah. Great minds think alike on this one. But it's like the story came to an end, especially because the temple is built and the cloud filled the temple. So again, that cloud that was at the tabernacle, you know, the Holy of Holies that would lead Israel. Well, now it's in Israel, dwelling with Israel forever in the temple. So it's like the story should be over in a positive way. But I think those hints of bad things with Solomon are indicating the story's not quite over. So to me, it's a lot like in the first Lord of the Rings when they finally make it to Rivendale. And it seems like the story could be over, except for that nagging fact that there are ring wraiths out there and the ring still exists and it's got to be destroyed. So that's kind of like what this feels like. Um, everything's good. They're safe. Everything's right. They're, they have bountiful provisions and supplies and wealth, but not everything is quite right. So there's one other warning sign that I want to mention, and that is in Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple towards the end of it, in chapter 8, verse 46, he talks about when the people sin against God and God hands them over to the enemy and their captors deport them to the enemy's country. It's like he can foresee the exile and ultimately he his false god worship and pagan wives will be what sparks the exile that he's praying about here as he dedicates the temple. Um, but there's a note of hope as well as he asks God that when they pray and repent and they pray towards the temple, please hear them. Let them know that you can hear them. And what do you see Daniel doing? Praying towards the temple. Hmm. You know, so it, it seems like that this is where that notion of praying towards Jerusalem would have started. As we're reading about all of Solomon's wealth and grandeur, uh, there is, I think, a right w- sense that it's good. You know, the temple's being built, there's beauty and glory everywhere, but it's quickly turned on its head and it it doesn't mean anything about God's blessing on him ultimately or is an indication of his righteous living because all of that goes away. And then within one chapter, the kingdom's divided. So you have the kingdom at its peak and pinnacle, it seems. And then in one chapter, through idolatry and impurity, polygamy, the kingdom's divided. And I think it's probably good for us to realize that sometimes what looks like it's thriving is not actually thriving. You know, sometimes what looks glorious and good is not, and we shouldn't put our rest and our hope in that. So as I'm preparing for the sermon on Sunday from James, James says, you know, you person, you lowly person, boast in your exaltation, and you rich person, boast in your humiliation. And I think what's happening in Solomon's life is sort of an example of what what James is talking about. Yeah, did you want to uh, talk about the Gospel of John? (laughs) (laughs) What is the one thing that you have? Oh, I'm saving that for last, brother. Nice. Because it's in chapter 18. Chapter 18. Chapter 18. So is it when Jesus says that I am he 
No, we're the not playing the guessing fault. game. Come on. Oh, man. But you should talk about that section if you want to. Well, I always thought, because I kind of wanted to think that in this this episode here where they're coming to arrest Jesus and the soldiers come and Jesus asks them, who, who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus is Nazareth. And he's like, I am he. We see this I am statement. And then all the soldiers in this account fall over or they walk backwards and bump into each other. Somehow all the soldiers fall over and they got to get up and then they ask the question again. That doesn't happen, I don't think, in the other accounts, but um, it's curious that that happened. So I've always wondered, well, what did happen? Why is that detail there? And if you look at the other, some other I am statements that are accompanied by signs, many of them were miraculous or had powerful situations attached to them. It could be that Jesus's words, the I am, hearkening back to the name of God, when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, you know, Moses asked him, who, you know, who's talking to me? Who is this? And it just says, you know, God says, I am, or, uh, mm-hmm. or I am who I am. And so um, we see that as a theme throughout John. There's multiple I am statements. And so it's possible that this could be another sign, even though it's not identified as a sign, but they're not all identified as a sign. Is this what you're teaching the kids so, in the John class? So I've thought about it. Um, we haven't gotten here yet. Okay. There's been a couple. So even early on in John 2, when um, it's after the first sign in Cana, where Jesus turns the water to wine, we have this episode where Jesus leaves Cana and then goes to the temple and clears the temple. And there wasn't anything miraculous about that, but Kostenberger says that that's a sign because that action pointed towards his messianic identity. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't a miraculous thing. So this would be one of the kind of exceptions to where if you define what is a sign, most of the time it's something miraculous. But John does not use the the word for miracle. He uses Mm -hmm. the word for sign. That's why. And then he identifies these different things. Yeah. Well, this is not identified as a sign either, but... Kostenberger thinks it's a sign because his definition of sign is something that points to his messianic sure. identity. And then he sees six other signs to make this okay. complete seven number. So can you help us understand why it would be important to identify six or seven or five or eight signs and why we why it would matter to have clearly identified signs instead of saying, well, Jesus did a lot of things that were indicating or pointing towards signing his messiahship. Yeah, I think, so this is my opinion, that I think there are, you can easily divide this book with seven signs. There's not 30, you know, so that it, whatever number you come up with, it's six, eight, nine, something, some in that range. And so seven, you know, we see is an important number in the Bible for completeness or perfect perfection. Um, And then we have these other literary devices that John uses too, these I am statements, and you could easily see seven statements where John records Jesus saying, I am 
something. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection, like that. And then we have these other ones where there's no predicate. There's just mm-hmm. I am, or I am he. A lot of times yeah. the he is not there, but it's just that's you know it's yeah. not. The, it's in the verb. The he, right? Yeah, yeah. So we see that because of that, you know, you add that up, how intentional John was yep. in creating this. You could see, well, okay, well maybe he did intend for there to be seven, so I should find seven. Yeah. And I suppose with starting out with the allusion to creation as well, seven you know, days, not listing yeah. seven days, but speaking of creation, right. maybe it early on introduces that theme. Definitely, yeah. Okay. I think so. But I, I guess m- my concluding thought would be, John doesn't say, here are seven signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yep. So I would say that we don't need to look for seven. Okay. Most of the commentary commentaries will pick seven okay nice yeah i i have to confess i've never gotten the fascination with finding seven signs or being really particular about identifying which signs are true signs and which are not true signs or something like maybe i need to care more but i just haven't cared that much yeah i only cared because i wanted to write a paper about it when i was in a john class and one of the points that the professor was making that many times the um, the I am statements were in close proximity to a sign. Okay. And so we see an I am statement here, and yep. I'm okay. Is there, you know, is there a yeah, sign? Yeah, that makes sense. And then we see something that could be miraculous happening. Yeah. And so I made that connection, and the professor was like, "Yeah, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Why don't you write a paper?" Oh, nice. So. In addition to that, I was saying that my thesis was that the I am statements and the signs escalate okay. through the book of signs. Nice. And so I had to make this be something that more miraculous that yeah. when Jesus speaks, something you know miraculous yeah. happened here. And did and you so, feel that by the end of your paper, you weren't just making that up, but it was actually pretty defensible so in all the research that i did which was basically just all of the english commentaries you know there were some monographs in german that i couldn't read so i don't know what they said but there was one guy who said maybe this was a miraculous thing and it could have been a sign and he was not even close to being like definite about it so i felt that if you remember was it Bachman? Okay. So that was all. So at least one other person was like, yeah, maybe. And that's all I was kind of, that's all my comment in class was, was is is this also. So at the very least, I felt better about like writing the paper. Yeah. And it was one of the worst grades I've ever gotten on a paper. Because I think, because I was trying to be original, the professor actually read the whole thing and then was like, yeah, this this guy does not know what yeah. He does not know how to write papers. Oh, bummer. Now, in this scene, I always imagine like a Gandalf scene where he's throwing down and saying, you shall not pass. And he puts the staff down and it's like this burst of energy comes out. That's what I imagine is I, coming I want from to Jesus. imagine that. That's what I want to happen here. Okay. But I don't know. I'm glad we're on the same page here. Yeah, I love that. If Definitely. we were screenwriting for The Chosen, mm-hmm. we'd have the same sort of scene play out yeah and then we'd have this like 
you know, Peter would have like an elvish sword that he'd cut off the guy's ear or something yeah. in this sequence. Yep. yep. Now, what was interesting to me is that the cousin of the guy who got his ear cut off is one of the people who confronts Peter. Is that right? Or yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When John or whoever lets him lets Peter into the because he knows the high priest, he's yep. connected. Then one of the people who asks him, Hey, my cousin some someone that looked like you cut off his ear, basically. <laughs> yeah. Were you with those guys? No, no, no. That that's not me. Yeah. I just, I could not yep. thought about that before. I mean, I'm sure I've seen it before, but it was interesting that uh he encountered the cousin of the guy whose ear he cut off. Mm-hmm. I'd be nervous. Right. <laughs> be like <laughs> gonna gra- hold on to my ears here, you know? You have a nice stutter. Today, Junior. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so AJ and Matthew, as you were reading John 17, Jesus' prayer for all believers that they would be one, they'd be unified, they'd be completely one. What what do you guys make of this, this prayer of Jesus' for Christian unity, and what should we do in response to that? I do not ask for these only, but... For those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, and what are the implications for the, the world coming to believe if Christians are divided? I think, I mean, overall unity, if we're talking about, um, you know, whatever unbelievers or outsiders or whatever looking in uh it looks it just looks a lot better if there's unity and there's not just internal either bickering or confusion or if people are looking it's like they can't even agree on whatever they believe in amongst themselves like they don't have their act together at all they can't even agree on what they think they believe in it's like just overall that'd be kind of a I would think that would be a turnoff where it's like, man, they don't have their act together. Well, we all know that we're all flawed. We're going to mess stuff up. Nothing's ever going to be perfect. We're never going to have perfect unity as flawed people. So, yeah, obviously that's not going to prohibit God from still working in people's lives. But, you know, to a certain extent, it's like I think it would turn some people off in certain situations if the dysfunction you know is bad enough like yeah i think that's good i think that's helpful i think there's a lot that i'm not certain of in terms of processing what it means to be one where you know what what that would look like on the ground i think it's easier to put it into application in a local church context like the members of the church should pursue unity together because on one level you can't really be one with individuals that you're never around, you know, in that, but we're all brought together through technology and other things. So what does it look like to be one in this broader communication grid that we have? I don't know. These are, these are some questions that I am not certain of. I think people need to also just be able to either be able to legitimately agree to disagree on non major beliefs about the bible not you know like the main core ones that you can't argue over but it's like i don't know it's like a lot of that stuff i think you gotta just 
like, I don't know, maybe I'm right, maybe you're right. It's not important for me to just cling on to my view and then be mad at you or think less of you because we disagree. It's like, hey, great, if you think that, maybe you're right, maybe I'm right, whatever, like on non-major issues. Yeah. Yeah, would you guys have any resources to recommend on this issue of Christian unity and division and identifying issues that are worth dividing over or not? Yeah, there's a a good book from Gavin Ortland called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Huh. I was I was hoping you would say I would really recommend reading the Pauline letters that deal oh, with James. the subject of Christian unity. In chapter 18, is Jesus is talking to Pilate. He tells him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And I just wanted to give one brief comment, and that is sometimes we hear Jesus say, My kingdom is not of this world. And we start to think that Jesus's rule and reign has nothing to do with life in this world. But I think a better translation of that phrase would be, my kingdom is not from this world, both times. In other words, he's saying, the authority of my kingship is not from anyone here. It's not from you, Pilate, or anybody else. You know, Rome doesn't give me this authority. I have heavenly authority, so my kingdom isn't from this world. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it's a brief comment. We'd like to thank everybody for listening. This has been the Resurrection Church Podcast, reading through the Bible in a year.